Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello everyone, I'm Trevor Cully, and this is the History of Persia, episode 71, New Friends, Old Enemies. Before we get into it, there is some exciting stuff happening. Just to reiterate, I am speaking at Intelligent Speech this year. If you skipped the announcement, it is a conference of educational podcasters who will be speaking and trying to connect with their fans. It's at 10 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time on June 25th, and I will be talking about Cyrus the Great. Sign up at intelligencespeechconference.com and use the promo code PERSIA to get an additional 10% discount. Links in the description. If for some reason I'm not enough of a draw, go check out the speakers list. It is a good show. I have also started writing articles for the history buffs. More on that later, but while we're all distracted, you should sign up for that too. That one is totally free, and you'd be doing me a favor by going to thehistorybuffs.com slash historyofpersia. Again, it's all really cool stuff. And last but not least, I am not personally involved with this because that would be way too cool, but... If you haven't heard, there is an exhibition this summer at the Getty Pavilion in Los Angeles. It is called Persia, Ancient Iran, and the Classical World, and it is about exactly that. It is an exhibition of primarily Achaemenid period artifacts, some of which have never been on public display before. If you're in the LA area this summer, I highly recommend checking it out. But even if you're not, there is a free resource from the exhibition online that is just too cool to pass up. If you go to persepolis.getty.edu, you'll find a full 3D rendering of a rebuilt Persepolis palace. They've restored the construction, the full-color artwork, 
and you can go through a digital tour of the Palace of Darius and Xerxes on your computer right now. It is a really cool thing, and again, that's persepolis.getty.edu. Links down below. You should check that one out, too. Okay. Last time, we began a series of episodes that will repeatedly take us from the beginning of Darius II's reign in 424 BCE right up to his death in 404 BCE. Episode 70 focused on tension on the imperial interior, with satraps launching rebellions in Assyria and Armenia in response to some royal family drama. And the Caducian people of northwestern media rebelled as well for what we can only assume are their own unrelated reasons. There were also tensions at court as Darius faced assassination attempts and family quarrels. His only daughter was killed in the Armenian rebellion, but his eldest son, Arsikas, had married Statera, a daughter of the Armenian satrap. Queen Perisatis wanted to throw Statira on the proverbial pyre with the rest of her family, but Arsicus and Darius intervened to put an end to the bloodshed. It was one of many actions that drove a wedge between members of the royal family. An important element on the periphery of all of those stories was Darius and Parisatis's second son, Cyrus the Younger who was born just after the illegitimate Prince Ochus declared himself King Darius II in 424. Today's episode is going to get Cyrus from a suckling infant, as his father consolidated power, toward his destiny as one of the most dramatic figures in Persian history. But to do that, we need to check back in with Greece. Unsurprisingly, we've missed a lot of Greek history in the decade since we last interacted with Athenian forces in episode 67. We did leave them on the precipice of an all-out war, after all. At that time, the Athenian leader Pericles had been dealing with a war against Samos, which he eventually won. He and the Lydian satrap Pisuthnes traded indirect blows on Samos and the Lycian city of Kaunos. They really pushed the limits of the Peace of Callias in 440, but the peace held. Then, in 431, war erupted between the Greek powers of Athens and Sparta. More accurately, between their respective alliances, the Delian and Peloponnesian Leagues, but let's be real, Athens and Sparta. I discussed what was happening in Greece around this time in a pair of bonus episodes over on Patreon. The show notes are getting pretty full, but I'll stick some links in the description, and you should really check those out too. You know, patreon.com slash historyofpersia, etc, etc. There's some good stuff, and also some unhinged ramblings about good stuff. I swear, this episode won't be entirely advertising. There's just a lot to point out. Anyway, the first phase of the war, a phase that lasted for almost a decade, didn't involve the Persian Empire very much. Part of this was just the legacy of the Peace of Callias. 
Persia wasn't allowed to intervene in the Aegean, but part of it was probably also that Artaxerxes didn't think he was wanted. He had tried to offer the Spartans aid in 460 at the outset of the First Peloponnesian War, and they turned him down. So from the outbreak of hostilities in 431 and into the reign of Darius II, Persia took a passive role. The war weakened Athens so much that they weren't really able to exert their influence in Anatolia. A nominally independent Lycian warlord, funded by Pasuthnes, reopened the city of Colophon for Persia, and Pasuthnes paid for mercenaries and local militias to defend Anatolia from Athenian raids on their rivers but he never went so far as to outright support anti-Athenian rebels or retake Greek cities. Meanwhile, the war in Greece was basically a ten-year-long stalemate. Sparta's armies were so dominant in the field that the Athenians just held up in their capital for years on end, even as a plague ravaged their population. Meanwhile, the Athenian navy could still command trade and pillage in the Peloponnesian coastline with impunity. And of course, they dragged their allies in. Thebes and Macedon were on Sparta's side, but in between was pro-Athenian Thessaly. This led to no shortage of sparring between the allies, but ultimately, both Athens and Sparta had to agree to end the fight and recoup their losses in 421. Throughout this whole process, a steady trickle of Spartan and Persian emissaries had been trying to communicate with one another. As the war dragged on, the Spartans did start looking to Persia as a possible ally, but nothing came of it partially because any aid had to cross overwhelmingly Athenian territory. Travel by sea was nearly impossible, on account of the Athenian navy. But the Athenians also controlled most of the land, and kept capturing embassies from both sides and sending them home in Thrace. The ones that made it through just couldn't reach any agreements. To the best of our knowledge, the last of these ambassadors was a Persian delegation on its way to Sparta, which got caught red-handed in Thrace near Aeon in 424. There's been a lot of writing about this particular encounter, both because the Persians seem to have walked right into the Athenian garrison, and because before the Marashu archive was well known, it was used to try and figure out when Artaxerxes I died. Having a firm date for Artaxerxes' death from Babylon actually might clear things up. One of the last Spartan actions in the first phase of the war was to march an army all the way from the Peloponnese to Thrace and conquer the Athenian silver mining colony at Amphipolis. The Persians may have been intending to meet them, but one of the only cities in the area Athens managed to keep was Aeon. The Athenians loaded their freshly captured Persian ambassador onto a ship with their own delegation to go and negotiate with either Pasuthnes or Artaxerxes for themselves. But they arrived at a pretty inconvenient time. Apparently, 
they set out at the end of the campaign season, and arrived in Ephesus just after Artaxerxes' death, so they just turned around. Presumably, they stuck around just long enough to hear that there was a civil war brewing, and they knew better than to try and get involved. Eventually, an Athenian embassy led by a guy named Epilochus did reach Darius II, Sometimes called the Peace of Epilochus, this just reaffirmed the existing arrangement. Darius retained official sovereignty over all of his ancestors' Greek territories, but he magnanimously let his Athenian clients exact tribute for themselves, and if he tried to change the arrangement, they would go to war. In exchange, the king and his satraps would keep their armies and ships far away from Athenian interests, and they could all trade in one another's ports. When exactly Epilochus made the trip to Susa isn't clear, but I'd hazard a guess that it was probably late 422 or 421. If they didn't want to come right after Artaxerxes died, I can't imagine they were eager to travel through the middle of Arcetes' rebellion in Assyria. That was the point when things were starting to calm down for Darius. His brothers were dealt with, his throne was secure. He had two sons, a powerful marriage alliance, and all was good. But you wouldn't want too much of a good thing, right? So up in Lydia, Satrap Pesuthnes went into revolt sometime between 420 and 415. Why? We have literally no idea. He was Darius's second cousin, once removed, a descendant of Darius the Great, and thus an Achaemenid. Potentially, an all-Persian Achaemenid with no foreign ancestry to speak of. He could have made a play for the throne. Scholars seem skeptical of that, on the basis that Darius II's claim was better as a son of Artaxerxes but we know so little about succession law in the empire. Plus, he's still closer than Darius the Great himself was to Cambyses and Bardia, so I wouldn't rule it out. Secession is another possibility, though with Athens on his western border, Persia to the northeast and southeast, and a semi-autonomous Lycian warlord to the direct south, that seems pretty implausible. More likely, he just didn't like some policy change under the new king. Maybe Pasuthnes wanted Darius to take a harder stance and let him reconquer Ionia. Or maybe Darius was planning on replacing him. Or at least preventing Pasuthnes' son, Amorges, from inheriting his position. Or, you know, it could be something really banal and mundane about taxes, road work, and the postal service. Regardless, Pesuthnes found himself in the market for an army. His local levies were one thing, but he had imperial loyalists on three sides, and potentially still a royal army milling around in Assyria. He looked to his precedents. This is just the fourth time a satrap had gone into rebellion, so far as we know. The first three were all in Assyria. Apparently, in Pesuthne's mind, their problem was location. 
because he happily hopped on the idea of hiring Greek mercenaries. Fortunately for him, the Aegean was suddenly full of hardened veterans of a ten-year war looking for work. Pesuthnes hired an Athenian commander named Lycon and his troops to come to Lydia and fight for the rebels. Lycon's exact motivations are subject to debate, too. Some say he was there as an official agent of the Athenian government. Others that he was just a mercenary. I am solidly in the latter camp because of how this story ends. Darius took a quick look around at his staunchest allies to choose a commander. In the immediate area, Assyria was still on shaky ground, Cappadocia was sparsely populated, and Phrygia had either a very old or very inexperienced satrap. But remember, this is before everything with the Hidarnid family fell to pieces. So Darius ordered Tissaphernes, the son of Hidarnes, to lead an army into Lydia and evict Pesuthnes. As a reward, Tissaphernes would become the new satrap of Lydia, one of the empire's wealthiest and most strategically important provinces. Of course, if you take the view that Pesuthnes rebelled because Darius wanted to replace him, then maybe Tissaphernes was just taking his appointed office. Tissaphernes did that, but he also looked around at his precedents and took away a different analysis. Those Assyrian rebels were sure easier to beat if you just bribed the mercenaries. And that's just what he did. When Tissaphernes' army reached Lydia, instead of starting a battle immediately, he sent a letter to Lycon and laid out the situation. Lycon could fight for Pesuthnes and maybe even win in the short term, and walk away with whatever pay he could get before a full-blown royal army arrived to overwhelm them. Or he could mutiny and come over to Tissaphernes' side, overwhelm Pesuthnes right now, and receive lands and income as one of Tissaphernes' vassals in Lydia. Lycon liked what he heard and switched sides. Pesuthnes had no choice but to negotiate a surrender. But, and you may notice a pattern here, when he went to negotiate, Tissaphernes had him arrested, sent him back to Darius, and he was burned to death with ashes. With that, Tissaphernes became satrap of Lydia, and all was well. Or not. It depends on who you ask. Pesuthnes had a son, Amorges, and he carried on his father's ambitions. If you read a bunch of modern historians, many of them will say that Amorges continued his father's rebellion. And in one sense, that's absolutely true. Eventually, Amorges rebelled, and it's hard to imagine that wasn't connected to his father at all. Usually, that's good enough because the writer is just trying to get into the Peloponnesian War, but I'm taking as much time as I want, so let's talk about Amorges. His father had appointed him as the local governor of Caria, the southwestern part of Lydia, where the local Carian people dominated the interior 
and shared the coast with the Doric Greek Hexapolis. In previous eras, the Greek tyrants of Halicarnassus had governed Caria on behalf of the Lydian satrap. But since Halicarnassus went over to Athens in 450, the Persians still needed someone on the interior. Right now, that was Amorges, and when Pasuthnes rebelled, his son joined him. What's not clear is if Amorges surrendered and was allowed to keep his position for a time, or if Tissaphernes miscalculated by deporting and executing Pasuthnes immediately, and Amorges dug in to carry on the fight. But he wasn't reliant on local levies either. Amorges hired mercenaries from the Peloponnese rather than Athens. If they were hired at the same time as Lycon, it raises questions about why they too couldn't be bribed out of service. If Amorges put down his arms and then rebelled again a few years later, these are new mercenaries. The timeline is impenetrable here. Theseus only mentions Pasuthnes, and the rest of the Greek sources only mention Amorges. It's not the usual case of confused identities, but a question of scale. Theseus, learning the history of Persia in the royal court a few decades later, heard about Pasuthnes and didn't think Amorges was important to his story. For other writers focused on Greek history, Amorges had the greater impact. Tissaphernes formalized the Achaemenid administration's relationship with Cariga, the ruler of Lycia on the southern side of Anatolia, and they worked together through inland Caria. Amorges couldn't withstand the assault, but even as he lost territory, his mercenaries stuck by him. Ultimately, they all took refuge in the port city of Iasos on the northwestern corner of Caria. But of course, as a coastal city, practically in Ionia proper, Iasos was a member of the Delian League. That's okay, though, because Amorges was an Athenian stooge. The Peloponnesian mercenaries in question were funded by Athens, and Athens provided refuge even as Tissaphernes was bearing down on them. Lacking the specific terms of the Peace of Callias, and by extension the more recent Peace of Apilicus, it is hard to know who violated the peace first. Tissaphernes led his army to the coast, but Athens was harboring and funding a Persian rebellion. Regardless of the legal technicalities, the peace was objectively shattered. But at that moment, there was very little Tissaphernes or Darius II could do about it. Athens ruled the Aegean, and even with a fully empowered royal fleet, the Persians did not want to risk open naval warfare again. Without the fleet, Tissaphernes couldn't blockade Iasos, and without a blockade, his siege was ineffective so long as Athens supported Amorges. But at the same moment, the winds of change were starting to blow across the Mediterranean, and they carried exciting news from far, far to the west. 
further west than any Persian had ever been if we believe Herodotus. The peace between Athens and Sparta had only ever been half-hearted. On paper, they agreed to 50 years, but the last 30-year peace only sustained a decade. On top of that, the Spartan general holding Amphipolis absolutely refused to give it back to Athens no matter what any treaty said. Effectively, he established a Spartan colony in Thrace. Athens sponsored rebels against Sparta in the Peloponnese for years, and even tested the water by sending some, let's say, military advisors to join the rebels and spread democracy. Always a winning strategy. They were utterly crushed in a single battle. The war had taken a real toll on Athens. Pericles and most of his family were killed by a plague early on. The next guy to get popular enough to really cultivate a personal following in the Athenian assembly died during a failed attempt to reclaim Amphipolis. In lieu of a war to build up their personal reputations, it took a few years for a guy named Alcibiades to gain some traction. He was apparently a wildly charismatic guy. He got the attention of important people early on in his life, and had the best Athens could offer at its height. He not only fought alongside Socrates in a battle during the first stage of the war, but he was one of Socrates' favorite students. Yes, as in the philosopher that was so annoying he was executed. According to several sources, Socrates thought that he could change Alcibiades and teach him morals. He failed at that. Alcibiades was one of the most purely political figures of antiquity. He wanted power, and he would get it by hook or by crook. He became one of the leading voices in favor of an Athenian invasion of Sicily. The coast of the island had been dotted with Greek cities for centuries, and the greatest of those cities was Syracuse, one of the few cities to start as an actual Spartan colony, but many of its neighbors were Ionian, and thus Athenian allies. There had been a bit of interaction with Sicily during the recent conflict with Sparta, precisely because Syracuse had the potential to be a major naval asset for the Spartans. But it never rose to the fore, despite Alcibiades' insistence, before 415. But then... As hostilities with Sparta were starting to escalate again, Athens got a call for help from Segesta, a city which had just launched a local border dispute and needed aid. The Segestians said they would help cover the cost of food and travel if the Athenians would just send a little help to Sicily. Alcibiades successfully convinced the Athenians to make the expedition, but through some scheming and probably a frame-up, Alcibiades only got as far as landing on the island before being recalled to Athens. Of course, pulling him out hardly helped because not only did the two commanders left behind disagree about tactics, but they soon discovered that Segesta had been leading them on and could only pay for their expenses after they won the border war. 
of course, that may have had something to do with the fact that Athens sent half their fleet and almost 7,000 men for a minor border skirmish. Their real goal was to take down Syracuse by threatening its allies. And the mission was partially accomplished. But the Syracusans massively outnumbered the Athenians. Their first battle was a disaster for Athens, and the minor reinforcements the next year were effective in one battle, but Athens was still pinned down in their own fortifications. Meanwhile, the Athenians back home put Alcibiades on trial and exiled him. So he went to Sparta and spilled the beans. He inflated the threat and told the Spartans that Athens was planning to conquer all of Sicily, and Italy, and uh, Carthage too, and use them as a base to conquer Sparta. Of course, on its face, that is absurd. Even with the infamously poor understanding of just how big these places really were, Athens was not going to invent the Roman Empire 200 years early just to conquer Sparta. Still, it got the Spartans sweating, which led to a few things. A. The Spartans sent reinforcements to Syracuse in 413. B. Alcibiades showed them the most vulnerable spot in Attica, where the Spartans set up a fort and started raiding the Athenian silver mines. And C. With half of the Athenian fleet out in the west, they really ramped up their communication with Persia. In this case, that meant Tissaphernes and a new player, Pharnabazus II, satrap of Phrygia. He is just the latest in a line of descendants from the famed general Artabazus to inherit the position. But this time, Pharnabazus seems to have inherited it right around the same time that Tissaphernes took Lydia. This means that there wasn't a senior satrap in Anatolia anymore. So Pharnabazus and Tissaphernes both took active roles in negotiating with Sparta, but also competing with one another for royal favor. And of course, these negotiations were taking place with Morgay's revolt as the backdrop. That revolt, and the implicit abandonment of the peace with Athens, played their part. The final straw may have been a change in economic policy. Athens decreed that they wouldn't collect tribute anymore. Instead, they'd take a 5% cut of anything coming and going from every port in the Delian League. That was not part of the original deal. One of the benefits of peace with Athens was supposed to be that the Persian treasury could tax trade with the Delian League. If every Persian merchant lost 10% of their revenue and every Greek merchant lost 5%, there would be less for Persia to take as well. Around 414 BCE, Darius II issued the official royal response to the new status quo. It was a simple, bureaucratic approach. Pharnabazus and Tissaphernes were both informed that their tax assessment had changed they were now responsible for collecting tribute 
from the Greek cities on their respective coastlines. Implicit in this was the understanding that Darius had rescinded his generous allowance to his Athenian vassals for their poor behavior supporting a rebel. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors. And Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Unfortunately for both satraps, this new mandate did not come with a royal army to help enforce it. Why not is harder to say. Darius may have been hesitant to demand empire-wide military service and reenact the most disastrous campaign of his father and grandfather's lives. Whether it was a disaster or an embarrassing border skirmish, it is hard to imagine that the Persian nobility was supportive of an all-out war with Athens anymore. Still, Tissaphernes hoped that he could potentially convince Darius to send him the royal fleet if they could get the Athenians out of the way. And that's the offer he made to the Spartans. If Sparta would help him, he'd command the royal fleet to aid Sparta and counter Athenian naval dominance. He would also aid Sparta if there were any rebellions within the Peloponnesian League. The only catch was that the Spartans had to agree to assist Tissaphernes with rebellions in his own territory. Priority number one was Amorges and the Siege of Iassos. 
but under his new mandate, that must also have meant reconquering Ionia. 413 was an ideal year to launch this plan. Back in Sicily, Athens had sent an additional 73 ships and 5,000 infantry. That puts almost the entire Athenian fleet and 12,000 soldiers in the west. All told, the Delian League had more than 60,000 people participating in this venture, between soldiers, sailors, locals, and support personnel. Having this many people out west crippled the Delian League's capabilities in the east. And then the next battle with Syracuse was a disaster. The Athenian fleet got blockaded inside its own port, and with no room to maneuver, they suffered the same fates as the Persians at Salome, with the added problem that there was nowhere to retreat, even if they escaped. Repeated attacks by Syracuse and the Spartans left 7,000 survivors imprisoned in the quarry, where they began to die of starvation and disease, as they waited their turns to be sold into slavery. Nobody ever said war in the ancient world was nice, and the Spartans clearly never had any qualms about enslavement. Don't start rooting for them just because they're on, quote-unquote, our side for the next couple episodes. The general consensus in the Mediterranean at this point was that Athens was screwed. They could recoup the manpower and hire more mercenaries, but the loss of the fleet was all that mattered. They had held off Spartan pressure for 70 years on the back of the fleet, but a third of it was gone, and they could hardly count on their supposed allies in the Delian League to provide ships if they couldn't exert their own power. They had spent the last 50 years using the navy to beat the allies into submission. Rebellion was now all but guaranteed. Still, the Athenians did what they could and started building ships as soon as they heard about the disaster. Sparta and all of its allies, which basically equated to anyone who was more pissed at Athens than they were at Sparta, all started building their own fleets too. Nauruz must have come early for Tissaphernes and Pharnabazus, because all of a sudden, retaking control of the coast wasn't an impossible fantasy. In fact, people on the coast started coming to them, the city of Erythrae and the adjacent island of Chios, sent word to Tissaphernes that they wanted his aid, and the island of Lesbos reached out to Sparta. On account of this new alliance, the function was the same. Up in Phrygia, Pharnabazus didn't want to get cut out of the potential winnings, and he sent emissaries to Sparta with a chest full of silver to get them to come to the Hellespont, i.e. his own territory. The Spartans said they would be happy to accept the funds and help out their new Persian ally, but Pharnabazus would have to get in line and wait his turn. They faced some initial resistance from the Athenian fleet as they were getting underway, but Alcibiades assured the Spartans that Athens was crippled, and he joined the Spartan fleet as an advisor to inform against the Athenians. They successfully ran the Athenian blockade on their second try, 
and arrived just north of Chios at the city of Coricus, where they began supporting local rebels and helped run the Athenians out of town. And so it began. Once they were in Ionia, the Spartans started getting word from many cities that they were really tired of this whole Athens thing. The Peloponnesian League and its fleet had become an arm of the Achaemenid Empire in the Aegean. Unlike the pro forma language of the Peace of Callias, the treaty with Sparta really did engage the Greeks as servants of the great king. The eastern theater of the Peloponnesian War, the so-called Ionian War, was simultaneously the Persian Reconquista of their western seaboard, with the added benefit that the Persians weren't at risk themselves. The Spartans lost a naval skirmish near the city of Leucus, but Alcibiades was always the first representative off the boat, and he just didn't mention Sparta's naval setbacks. So at Chios, Spiraeum, Erythrae, and Teos, they just fell into outstretched hands from Sparta and Tissaphernes. Athens was alarmed by the rebellions and sent a fleet, but it was chased away by Spartan ships. It was a first in their shared history, but Athens wasn't going to give in without a fight. Through the late spring and early summer, when the Athenians tried to sail in, the Spartans and then the local Ionians themselves fought back. As any good student of the region's history knows, the key to Ionia was always Miletus, and Alcibiades happened to have friends in the Milesian ruling class. After the events around Chios, he went straight there and explained the situation. He implored them to revolt explicitly in favor of Persia to ease the transition for the other Ionian cities, which they did. Miletus became the new base of operations for the Spartan fleet. And from there, they took Methuma, Lesbos, Clatsomene, and Cume. At this point, Athens did manage to mount a successful counterattack for a few months. They retook parts of Lesbos and Chios, and besieged Miletus while their allies from Argos besieged Samos. But with the Sicilians now firmly in the Spartan camp, reinforcements actually came all the way from Syracuse to help out the Peloponnesian fleet. This worked in some places and not others. Samos did fall to Athens, but many of the other cities went back into Spartan or Persian hands. With nobody to stop them, a Spartan fleet sailed up to Iasos under false pretenses. They pretended to be Athenian until they were in the harbor, where they seized control of the city from the inside. At this point, the mercenaries, realizing that it was their own fellow Peloponnesians and nominal allies that had taken the city, saw their chance to get out of jail free. They offered to surrender and join the Spartan army if that would get them out of any punishment from the Persians. The Spartan naval commander for the year was King Agis, and he agreed. They opened the gates for the combined Lydian-Lycian force outside. And from there, an allied Spartan and Persian army marched through the city, but they had very little to do. 
Amorgase had nothing left, and had already been captured by the residents. His fate isn't documented, but we can assume execution, and I would go so far as to say, burn to death with hot ashes. In Lycia, the capture of Yassos was immortalized in stone on the so-called Nereid Monument, a tomb built in the style of a Doric temple for either the current ruler Kariga or his son. After the fall of Iassos, there was some disagreement between the Spartans and Tissaphernes. It may have resulted in a skirmish between the Spartan army and Tissaphernes' own forces because it resulted in two amendments to their treaty. The Achaemenid royal treasury would be responsible for feeding, supplying, and paying for the Peloponnesian League forces fighting for Persian ends in Persian territory. Also, if any rogue actors from the Peloponnesian League attacked Persians, or vice versa, the Spartans or the Great King would rein them in and punish their subordinates. A third amendment was probably in response to the changing political situation in Ionia. The League and the Empire would make war on Athens together, but if either the Persians or the Spartans could negotiate a settlement, they would both agree to accept it. This was a necessary clause now that Athens was truly and formally at war with Persia once again. And the situation just kept going into the winter between 412 and 411. After Iassos fell, Athens sent another counteroffensive to retake some island cities and blockade Miletus. Alcibiades and King Agis were now in Miletus sending letters to open ports to coordinate their fleet's activities all through Ionia. They had a lot to deal with. The Athenians had naval squadrons trying to take what they could along the coast, preventing the promised Spartan aid from sailing north to help Pharnabazus retake the Hellespont. They did try to sail out into the Mediterranean and go around the Athenians, but it didn't work. They ended up getting attacked by Athens almost immediately and having to bounce southwest to Crete and then back to Kaunus in Lycia rather than going northeast. Meanwhile, Chios was just struggling to institute any kind of new government. They were being blockaded by Athens and couldn't agree on what type of system should make laws for their island now that they were marginally independent. On top of that, Chios was a hub of the Greek slave trade, and the enslaved masses of the island rebelled. But the Spartans couldn't deal with that now because they were too busy trying to defend Kaunas from an Athenian fleet. That Athenian detachment was easily defeated and left the Dodecanese islands undefended. Sparta retook Sime, Chalcis, Rhodes, Kos, and Cnidus for Persia. At the same time, an Athenian offensive at Miletus left a Spartan commander dead and made the Spartans doubt Alcibiades' loyalties. Alcibiades was just a little too weasel-wordy for the Spartans to trust, and he was condemned to death, but escaped and joined up with Tissaphernes. 
Tissaphernes had been traveling all over his eastern territory for months, with a long royal retinue and an army trailing after him as he reinforced some Peloponnesians here and accepted some homage there. Alcibiades was a welcome addition. As a Greek himself and an Athenian familiar with the political situation in the now former Delian League, he was well-suited to act as an advisor and a negotiator. Or rather, he would have been had he not been so power-hungry himself. One of the first things to happen after Tissaphernes hired Alcibiades was an envoy arriving from Sparta and meeting them at Cnidus in Greek Caria. This envoy had a letter from the Spartan assembly, informing both the Spartans and the Persians that they'd have to renegotiate the treaty again. The current terms were far too luxurious, with Tissaphernes offering to pay for everything. On the surface, that explanation seems wholly absurd, but from the Spartan perspective, it may have been a valid concern. The last Spartan commander to get too comfortable working closely with the satraps of Anatolia was Pausanias, who wound up trying to initiate a Helot slave revolt in Sparta on Xerxes' behalf. Not to worry, Alcibiades to the rescue. He told Tissaphernes to slash the wages of the Spartan sailors, pay them irregularly, and bribe their commanders to keep everything orderly. He also took the role of Tissaphernes' chief liaison with the Greeks, seeking aid from their nominal satrap and kept sending them all away. His usual excuse was that they had to blame it on Chios, which was still under siege and dealing with a slave rebellion. It was so rich that the Persians could not conscience giving any more support to any Greek city. He also told them that the expense of the Spartan fleet and inland defense was just too much of a burden right now. But later, maybe they could get some loans. When dealing with the Spartans, who wanted to plan more naval conquests, Alcibiades told them to wait because the imperial fleet would be on its way shortly. In reality, there was no sign of the fleet mobilizing any time soon. The Athenian was not being completely underhanded here. He explained his plan to Tissaphernes. Alcibiades was a staunch believer that Athenian democracy was overrated and preventing Athens from taking the tough decisions necessary to fight this war. He wanted to see it replaced by a much smaller oligarchy. And he assured Tissaphernes that these new oligarchs could be friendly to the Persians if they had his support. The idea was that the Persians would benefit most from the Greek powers wearing each other down. Tissaphernes was willing to follow this to a point. Allies in Athens and Sparta would both be useful, but he was still keeping some cards close to his chest. Alcibiades was apparently unaware that Darius himself had called for the reconquest of the entire Ionian coast. 
Tissaphernes had Alcibiades reach out to the Athenian fleet and negotiate conditions under which Persia might offer some financial assistance to Athens and support the richest Athenians in a coup to seize power back home. Alcibiades ferried offers and counteroffers back and forth, but Tissaphernes was just stringing Alcibiades and his countrymen along. The terms amounted to a total Athenian surrender and a return to the pre-499 status quo. Athens could never accept it, and the negotiations intentionally collapsed. Alcibiades was left in the lurch. He wasn't expelled from Tissaphernes' entourage, but he was cut out of the negotiations when they recalled the Spartan fleet to Miletus and resolved their back pay. Tissaphernes properly renegotiated the Perso-Spartan alliance now that Alcibiades was no longer running the show. As winter of 411 BCE drew to a close, Tissaphernes both wanted to ensure that the Peloponnesian fleet was in fighting order and that they wouldn't raid Persian territory to get supplies. The conditions of the Spartans' pay was adjusted to accommodate their government's demands. Instead of paying the Spartans for the entirety of their time in Persian territory, Tissaphernes would cover maintenance for the Peloponnesian fleet and its crews until the arrival of the Imperial fleet from Phoenicia. At that point, the Spartan commanders would be allowed to take out loans from Tissaphernes and pay them back after the war. The condition about making war on Athens together but accepting any peace treaty was also amended. Under the new treaty, Persia would not officially go to war with Athens until the royal fleet was deployed, and once they did, all negotiations would be handled with representatives from both Sparta and Persia present. Overall, it was pretty reasonable. And once the new treaty was signed, the Spartan government sent another small force to land in the Thracian Chersonese, and finally lend Pharnabazus a hand with the Hellespont by taking the city of Abydos, while a larger fleet was finally able to send a detachment north and relieve Chios. Of course, that meant re-enslaving tens of thousands of people, but again, don't expect better from the Spartans here. But this episode is long, and as I record this, I've just finished the next script, and it is longer. The merger of Greek armies with genuinely Persian events has a tendency to do that. So next time, we will pick up with the Ionian War in 411, because things are a-changin'. Until next time, if you want more information about this podcast, you can go to historyofpersiapodcast.com, where you will find things like my bibliography, the Achaemenid royal family tree, and the support page, where you will find things like one-time payments through Stripe, links to sign up for events like Intelligent Speech and the History Buffs, and Patreon subscriptions, where you can subscribe at patreon.com slash historyofpersia to get access to things like ad-free listening and bonus episodes. Of course, there's always the free ways to support the show as well, which I guess includes the history buffs in this case. You can just 
go on social media and tell everyone how much you like the history of Persia and why they should listen to it. You can find me at History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram or History of Persia on Twitter. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to the History of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.